Hello and welcome to Off The Block Swimming Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Cox, and this is the season two premiere that you've all been waiting for. It's been almost two years in the making, but we are finally back in your headphones, in your cars, on your loudspeaker, and also playing on the sound system at the local IGA supermarket down in Albury, Wodonga. Okay, I may have made that last one up. But the point is, Off The Blocks is back, and we have a huge show to kick us off with our very special guest, Gian Rooney. I'm not going to make you wait any longer. I will leave the introduction of our guest for the future me on the other side of this opener. So get your snacks ready, strap yourselves in, tell everyone around you to keep the noise down, because Season 2, Episode 1 starts... Now. Away they go. No problems with the start. There is two 100 in the second in it. Gary Hall Jr., the extrovert, and Ian Thorpe battling it out down the pool. Thorpe is starting to go away from him. Oh, he's blowing him away now. Thorpe's gone more than a meter on Vanderhoof in hand. But the signature of all eyes is the great Phantom Butterfly, Susie O'Neill. He's coming back. Oh, he surely can't do it to him again. Chavis in the white hats, Phelps in the black hats, and Phelps has got it. I cannot believe he's done that. Caught Tim Cook, caught Ben Hall, Caught goes in. Today on the show, we are joined by a legend of our sport in both the pool and in the commentary box. She's competed in two Olympics, winning a gold and two silver medals as a part of the Australian relay teams. She's competed at three world championships over her career, finishing with five in total, um, including a gold in the 200 freestyle at Fukuoka. She holds six Commonwealth Games medals from three separate games and she is a former world record holder as a part of the 2004 Athens 4 by 100 meter individual medley relay team. Since 2007 she's been on our TV screens in many different roles but we all know her as one of the voices of swimming here in Australia. Ladies and gentlemen it is my warm welcome to Off the Block Swimming Podcast Gian Rooney. Gian how are you? Oh. I'm very well. Thank you, Robbie. Thank you for such a uh, lovely intro. Very nice. Mate, I stumbled a little bit along the way there, but it's the first one back. But I, I feel like we'll get better. We'll warm up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, for all the listeners out there, I am coming to you today from Bexley Aquatic Centre down here in Sydney. It's a beautiful day. The sun's out. It's about 25 degrees, actually. It's really turned it on today. Um, where have we caught you? Uh, I'm actually on the Gold Coast. I live and, uh, yes, have lived for a while now back on the GC and it's a beautiful sunny day, oh, yeah, so I'm not going to rub that me. in too no, much. you're going to beat me. <laughs> I didn't know where exactly you lived. I was kind of thinking Melbourne because I know you did a bit of you swam yes. down there, so I was hoping you'd say, look, to be honest, I'm in Melbourne, it's raining. But no, you, you've beaten me. The Gold Coast. I can't uh, say that. Don't worry. I did thirteen <laughs> years in Melbourne. So grew up and grew up in southeast Queensland. Did thirteen years in in Melbourne. Moved down there and absolutely loved Melbourne. Uh, it's a cracking city. But I say that the weather is population control yeah. because if the weather was better, everyone would want to live there. So <laughs> yeah. been back on the coast about nearly four years, and uh, we're very lucky. The weather is amazing, and we have a really good life. So um, I am quite spoiled. <laughs> yes, yes, half your luck. Now, um, I just want to start by pulling the curtains back on the show a little bit. 
And just giving everyone a bit of a backstory into how this interview came about, um, I started chatting back and forth with your management um, about yes. doing this podcast about this time last year. And we'd set it all up. We we're ready to go. You were on board. You're happy to do it. And then on the 25th of September, my wife went into labor uh, 14 weeks early. Uh, and gave birth to our daughter, Charlie, which left us in hospital for the next 105 days. Um, I emailed you guys and let you know the situation and that we wouldn't be able to do the interview. And I got a reply straight back saying, you know what, don't stress, go spend time with your family, uh, look after them and we can do the, you know, the interview whenever. So a year on and Charlie is as healthy and as cheeky as ever. Um, I sent an email back to your management and just said, look, in the off chance, Gian's happy to, like, I can understand it's been a long time if she's not, um, but I'd, I'd really love to interview her again. And I got an, a reply straight away saying, Gian, I'd love to come on. So I've got to start by saying, Gian, thank you very much for agreeing to come on today from myself, from oh. my family, from Charlie. Um, I'm sure if she could say words, she would say thank you. It'd just end up <laughs> rambling. Um, it's been a long road to get here, but you know the podcast is back, and I couldn't think of a better way of kicking off season two than interviewing a legend of our sport, but more importantly, one of the nicest people from our sport. So thank you. Oh, you're just lovely. And no, I am. Um, I, all I did was feel for you and your family when all that happened a year ago. And uh, my lovely management company, I'm actually going to give them a bit of a plug, International Quarterback. I've been with my manager, Chris White, for 20 years now. So he took me on as a 16-year-old uh, uh, in the pool yeah. and has guided, mentored uh, me throughout uh, my swimming career and my post-swimming career. And the thing that makes him so incredible and his business so incredible and our working relationship so amazing is the fact that uh, everything he does, he puts others first and yeah. family particularly first. And uh, that's our motto is relationships and the importance of being a good person. And so, you know, absolutely no issues whatsoever. Just happy that everyone is safe and well. That's yeah. the most important thing. Uh, she's killing it at the moment. She's doing very well. So thank you. Um I mean, just throwing back to that intro, and I've asked a few Australian swimming legends this in the past podcasts, such an impressive list of accomplishments you racked up over your career. I mean, you, do you ever see like an Olympic or a world championship medal lying around and get a quiet moment to yourself just to go, well, I actually achieved quite a lot in my um, career, or is it full-on mum life now, balancing work and everything else, where it's not until, you know, a buffhead like me reads it all out for you that you actually go, geez, I actually did pretty well in the pool, didn't I? Oh, do you know what? It's a bit of both, to be completely honest, Robbie. I um, I only got my Olympic gold medal out uh, a couple of months ago for the first time out of the safe where it's kept in a, a sunglass case, of all things. Yeah. And uh, the one from Athens, uh, 2004, she's fairly unimpressive, the actual medal herself. Okay. She's rusty. Yeah. <laughs> She's rusty. Uh, the ribbon is fading and coming apart. Um, it's the goddess Athena on the front okay. and uh, with the wreath on her head. And if you actually keep it in the case that she's meant to come in, the official Olympic 
um, metal case, it actually scratches the top of her chest off. So she's got two shiny little marks um, on her and so that's why I keep her in a, a sunglass case. But it's funny, you know, my, my first actual light bulb moment, which is jumping way ahead where I realised that I was proud of myself, was the moment when I decided to retire from swimming. So it was six months out of the 2006 Commonwealth Games and I was training, yeah. swimming up and down, doing laps, um, preparing for Commonwealth Games in six months' time and I realised for the first time in my career that I was proud of myself and what I had achieved up until that point. So that almost set the tone and the basis for me considering retirement uh, after those 2006 Commonwealth Games. But it's funny now that, I mean, I've been retired over, what is it, 13 years now mm. and it often feels for me like it was another person yeah. that, that had those moments and those memories and those achievements. Uh, I, I struggle to put myself back there in a lot of ways. Obviously, the memories are, are still there and will always be there. But in terms of the, the emotions and the feeling of what it took to have those achievements, I, I, I sometimes now refer to it a little bit like childbirth. You know, they say, they say that you, you forget how full on and, and um, horrendous it is because you get something good out of the end of it. Yeah. Uh, so it's a strange thing. I, I still am very proud of my swimming career and what I achieved and I think that has helped me so much in my transition to life after sport because I have no regrets. But I also... Um, so much has happened since that time that I don't feel the need for it to define me either. Yeah. So You've I'm grateful for it, but I don't miss too. it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I'm grateful for it, but I don't miss it. And I think that's a really healthy place to be. Yeah. Oh, good for you. Yeah. No, I mean, yes, I listed those. There's a lot of other accomplishments to come down the podcast. That's just the swimming part. But yeah, you're 100% right. There's there's a lot more to, to you than just the swimming part. Um, sticking with the swimming part though for now, let's, um, <laughs> just to go back to where it all started for you, um, were you a water baby when you first started? I was. I was absolutely a water baby. As I said, I grew up in, in Brisbane and uh, my grandparents had a holiday house on the Gold Coast. So uh, even as a little baby, used to spend um, all of our holidays down on the Gold Coast surrounded by water. And um, I had lessons to swim when I was, you know, nine months old or whatever it was and uh, had swimming lessons through the school program and all the way through. But I wouldn't say that I, I had a natural affinity with the water and I loved being in the water. But I didn't actually start swimming squad lessons until probably a little bit older than yeah. a lot of athletes when they start. I was 11. And I had had um, stroke correction with a wonderful lady called Vicky Atkinson, which hilariously, in a full circle moment, she is the lady that teaches both my kids oh, how to nice. swim. Yes. So, and she said that she saw natural talent in me from the very first day. Mm -hmm. It took until uh, 11 years old. I was at my primary school swimming carnival. I happened to win a few races. And Vicky's um, daughter, Jamie, who was a year older than me, said, oh, you should come and join my swimming club. And I said, oh, that sounds good. I'll ask mum and dad, but yeah, that sounds yeah. like fun. <laughs> <laughs> So that's how it all started for me. I started off two afternoons a week and I immediately loved it. Yeah. I immediately felt um, comfortable, 
confident and was just having a ball of a time. And so two afternoons a week, begged my parents to go three afternoons a week, begged my parents to go four afternoons a week, and it just very quickly drew from there. I, I, I didn't have any incredibly early success if you like um in fact there's lots of uh memories of me you know um i would say that i was always a a hard trainer and a hard worker because i i i i needed that confidence or that ability to stand up on on race day but the majority of the reason for me was fun i just loved it i loved that feeling of being in the water and so one of my earliest memories is of driving to state queensland state titles in um rockhampton and my family took a week to get there was rockhampton or townsville might have been townsville um took a week to drive up there whole family school holidays and i came 13th in the state in the 50 backstroke as a 13 year old and I was livid. Yeah. <laughs> I hated that I didn't even make a final. I couldn't understand it. I was furious and I was so jealous of the girls that got to swim in the final. And um, I remember my mum saying, well, darling, you know, you only you only train a, a couple of afternoons a week and these girls, you know, they're doing morning training and winter training and, you know, they're doing a lot more work than you, so they deserve it a lot more. Yeah. And that was my first light bulb moment of all right i want to give this a proper crack (laughs) now you're known for being super fast for backstroke and freestyle were they always your main strokes are you going to shock me by saying like you were a natural breaststroker as a youngster (laughs) (laughs) um i'm definitely not going to shock you i am so far the other way uh i think backstroke was my my first stroke that i showed um a lot of promise in i i i had a good technique freestyle wise um I always think my, my technique was on point in my freestyle, but uh, I wasn't particularly fast. Yeah. So backstroke showed its true colours fairly early on and it was the one that I had early success with. But I can promise you, obviously we all as age groupers do all four strokes and all four strokes are incorporated into every training program and you even race them at every, um, at every meet that you come across. Yeah. Whereas I was the worst breaststroker you've ever seen um technique okay but certainly not enough flexibility in my hips or my knees to do a proper um breaststroke kick and butterfly i probably again not a bad technician but horrendous and still you know right throughout my swimming career the greatest punishment you could give me was anything that involved butterfly (laughs) i would rather do four times the distance in yeah. freestyle or backstroke than, you know, the, the shorter distance in butterfly. In butterfly. I just, yeah, just had no <laughs> ability to do it easily nor probably correctly. <laughs> now, taking away, going from that, like we go through with the juniors a lot of bad habits at times as you're coming through. Mm-hmm. They all do. Everyone has them. So I just want to go through a few now. And you just tell me if any of these were you as you were growing up coming through. Right? <laughs> so first one was feet on the bottom of the pool. No, never. Never. Look at you. Girl. No. Conveniently yep. missing, uh, miscounting laps, sorry. So, you know, just supposed to do a 400 swim and you conveniently only do a three. No, never. No, look at you. Well, yep. this no, next I... one, I really probably, I've just obviously left this here from last time, so I'm giving it away now because you surely... Gian Rooney was not pulling on the lane rope in backstroke. Absolutely. You were? 
Um, this is probably, yes, and any juniors listening, you should never do this, um, but never during the hard components of our set or the main parts of our set would I ever pull on the lane rope. Yeah. But backstroke for me as a recovery in a warm down um, after a race absolutely <laughs> would be in trouble all the time for pulling on the lane rope because I found it the only way to properly get my breath back and keep the arms ticking over. So I was a terrible lane rope puller, but never in the parts of the session that mattered in my my justification, (laughs) never in the parts that mattered. My coaches might have said otherwise. That's okay. Shocked me. As I was reading it, I'm like, no, surely she's going to go, nah, I not have done that. That's good. It's good to know. Uh, What about fixing goggles? No, I was very good in every other component, I believe. Yep. So no arms in a kick set? No, definitely. Loved a kick set. Loved a kick. It was my favourite part. So Uh, definitely no arms in a kick set. set. Nope. All right. So for anyone who doesn't know, you were training on the Gold Coast at Miami Swim Club? Um, yes, with legendary right. Australian coach Dennis Cottrell with some big names training there with you as well with like Grant Hackett, Daniel Kowalski. Um, yep. How was training like back then? Oh, my gosh. How to describe it? Um, it was amazing. And I am so incredibly grateful for Dennis Cottrell and him being my my um, my probably most influential person that I I came along in my swimming career and Dennis um is notoriously tough Uh, he is a crazy eccentric um you know old school got to do the mileage coach Mm -hmm. but he is also one of the most caring and one of the most um whatever you the, the more that you give, the more that he gives back. Yeah. So it was very much a partnership with Dennis. And, you know, when I first came to swim with Dennis, I was, I was 13 years old. Um, and as I said, he had a lot more people in his squad that were more advanced than I was. Uh, however, he also probably knew and understood that and had a respect for me because I had a work ethic. Yeah. I, I pride prided myself and I still do on the fact that this, the strongest point the, the re- only reason I believe that I had success more than anything else was because of my work ethic um, I trained and I pushed myself to the point where that's where I got um, my confidence from on race day is knowing that I'd put in more work than any other of the other girls standing up on the blocks next to me and Dennis I think from a very young age recognised that and therefore um, we had a great you know, coach-athlete relationship. Yeah. My squad was amazing and I, I, you know, still to this day, um, we'll get to it later, but I haven't swum a lap since the day I retired. Oh, and really? the main reason is I have not – I don't even own togs that would be appropriate to go for a swim in. Yeah. That's how um, far removed I am from, from swimming laps. But the main reason for that is because I had such, such exceptional squad mates um, in both the pools and the training programs that I had uh, where we were like brothers and sisters. We were like siblings yeah. and we supported each other just so incredibly well to the point where if I had rocked up to training one day and no one else 
showed up. None of my squad mates showed up. I almost sort of packed my bag and gone home because it was too hard to do without them and without that camaraderie that we had. So you mentioned Grant Hackett. Um, I have so much respect and had so much respect for Grant. He was like an, an older brother to me in the fact that I have never seen anyone work as hard as Hacky. Yeah. Never seen any – like just his ability to push himself – to the absolute extremes, not only day after day, but session after session is is and should be legendary. Yeah. He, he was just extraordinary. Um, I, I had other athletes that I trained. He would have had been given too. Yes, absolutely. He was um, he was just ex- extraordinary. Yeah. And then you know Dan Kowalski, Daniel Kowalski, another one that I was fortunate enough um, when I was younger to have in a squad uh, alongside me. And the same thing, just the ability to push themselves. And so I had all these um, incredible athletes and and the list goes on. Some some well-known, some not so well-known. We always had athletes from uh, overseas that would come and join our squad. We had every morning, we had the best of Australia's triathletes and the best of Australia's uh, Australia's Ironmen and Ironwomen join us every morning at the pool. So we had these exceptional athletes from um, all walks of life and I credit that environment with a lot of my success because it was a it was a competitive um, it was not only a competitive environment but it was also was an environment where if you didn't keep up you didn't fit in yeah you know there was no um, for the most part of my career it was a squad full of boys yeah. and there was no girls time cycle there was no girls program so if I didn't keep up with the slowest boy in the squad then I didn't keep up. Yeah. So, that, you know, that, there was a lot of things that were incredibly difficult um, as a, a teenage girl, but also is what made me, I think, is as tough, as, resi- as resilient and as hardworking as I was. Mate, in terms of age group swimming, now winter season's almost over here um, mm-hmm. for most of us, but everyone's starting to gear up for the big summer season ahead and all our junior uh, age group athletes have a major focus probably this year on on trying to get to nationals. Take mm-hmm. us back to your first nationals. How old were you and do you remember where it was held? I'm trying to think. I think probably I need to um, preface this question by also <laughs> saying that um, the first winter training, since that you mentioned it, yeah, Robbie, yeah, yeah. for yeah. me was – I used to play netball in the winter and I used to swim in the summer and that happened right up until uh, I was 14. And then Dennis Cottrell, my coach, was actually the one that said to me, look, you could be really successful in Mm -hmm. swimming, but you have to start making some decisions now if you want that to happen. Um, You need to start morning training and you need to start winter training. And I remember going home and chatting to my family and my family are, you know, beyond supportive like what my parents particularly did for me during my swimming career is nothing short of extraordinary and I am so grateful for their love and support every step of the way throughout my journey and even continues today but um, I remember going home and it was a family discussion around the dinner table and, you know, I was like, but I don't want to give up my netball. I love my netball and I was was a state rep netballer so, you know, my, my my sporting career could have gone very easily you didn't down pick up that any path. Injuries in netball, did you? 
No, I was like at that stage, I was very lucky that I didn't okay. have any ne- any injuries, and so um, it didn't affect my swimming on the other side. Um, but uh, you know, it was my it was actually my dad that was the, the voice of rationality that said, uh, you know what, G, for me, the way I look at it, um, you can always come back to netball. Netball is a sport that you can enjoy and in you can enjoy for the rest of your life yep. and even do it as a social um, sport later on in life if you want. However, swimming seems to be that if you want to have a proper crack at it, you need to do it now. There's no there's no other way to get the work in that you need to do now for that to make it happen. So why don't you give it a year or two, see what happens, and if it doesn't work, you can always go back to netball. And I went, all right. That, yep. sounds, that sounds pretty good. Yep. Um, so that's what I did. And so I committed over the next, uh, you know, 12 to 18 months um, to swimming, mm-hmm. started morning training, started winter training, and it paid off very quickly. But back to your question about age national. How would you go uh, with the mornings national. just to come back to, to the – how would you go um, when you, you know first what? started? Do you know what? I still, at 36 years of age, hate mornings. Yeah. I hate early mornings. I love my sleep and I'm not naturally a morning person. So I hated the alarm every single time when it went off at 4.47. But um, I also knew that there was, you know, I I knew that if I missed a session, I would feel guilty about it for the rest of the day. And I also knew that that was a session that a competitor somewhere around the world Was um, was doing that I wasn't. So I just... You know, hated it every morning, but learnt to make the best of it. Good way of thinking. So, yeah. Uh, but age national, my first age nationals, um, the first one I can remember was actually as a 14 year old, and they were in Sydney, actually. And um, I don't think I did very well. I can't remember much of it. I just remember that I actually got food poisoning from Sizzler oh. <laughs> and where we'd been How for dare a team you run dinner. Down the good name of yes. I know Sizzler was like the the place, you know, of my childhood. Yeah. We used to clear out as a squad used to clear out that buffet and the yeah. parmesan bread like every time we went there. Um but I got food poisoning and a doctor had to come and give me an injection to stop throwing up um, at the end of nationals. So I missed the disco at the end, which was devastating. Yeah, so that's my big, only record. things of the week, isn't <laughs> the it? big things, it exactly was. right. That's the social a, event yeah. of the year. Um, so I missed that. And that's my only real recollections of national um, age nationals, only because I had a first crack at Australian Open Championships as a 15-year-old. Yeah. And... Um, my story certainly changed from there. Definitely, <laughs> it definitely did. Um, mate, just sticking with it as a 13, 14-year-old for, just for this, the moment, body yep. image is such a big thing with our younger athletes coming through, you know, more so for girls, but we're starting to see it a lot more with boys as well, um, with Instagram and all the boys wanting to be bigger and look a certain way. And our sport is definitely a hard one if you are very body conscious because you're always out there just in your togs for everyone to see. Um, Mm. Was that something you went through as a young athlete and what advice would you have to anyone sort of growing up and going through those things now? Uh, This is a great question and it's a topic that I'm so glad is being raised, uh, you know, around adolescents of any age, to be honest, because it's such an important um, thing to be able to talk about and talk about openly. For me, 
I was really lucky. I never had any issues with body image. I um, have always looked like a boy in bathers anyway. I'm certainly not your curvaceous female. And I was highly jealous of all my friends who were the curvaceous females, uh, you know, in our teenage years and into our early 20s. But I also had this really healthy respect for my body. And I had a really healthy respect for other athletes' bodies as well. And that isn't meant to say the way that they looked. It was because of what they could do. Yeah. My my pride in my my appearance and my body, it was never about what it looked like. It was what it was capable of. Yeah. And I was so in awe of what bodies could do. And I think, you know, there used to be a long time ago that certain sports very much you could tell what athlete was from which sport by how they looked. Mm. And I think especially my era in swimming, really, um, my time on the Australian um, swim team, it showed that there was not one definitive body shape for male or females that equaled a successful athlete. Um, If you look at the female swim team over that time, we had an incredible uh, array of body shapes of heights, of weights, of, of weight distribution. And I was very, very fortunate that I had a coach in Dennis um, at that time that I think was quite forward thinking. And he recognised that I never had a problem keeping weight off. You know, I didn't have an issue with, with ever having to watch my diet. Um, the amount of work that I was doing meant that I, I was always – fit if you like and and carrying the 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 right weight for my frame but we went through a time where we were doing um skin fold testing and i know that still happens around these days it's where uh, a biomechanist um tests how much uh it's meant to be how much fat is in an athlete's body and hilariously every time um, my skin folds were higher, which might have instigated a negative reaction from some coaches. Yeah. It's actually when I swam my best. Okay. So Dennis figured out very early on that we ignored any of the skin fold testing. Mm. So I had a coach that didn't ever worry about where I was on the fitness scale. It was all about what I could do in the pool and what my times were showing and what my training sessions yeah. were showing was more important than anything else. And so my advice to, to um, the young ones today is whatever your body shape, whatever your um, – th- there is a certain capacity to change your body shape one way or the other, but ultimately what you're given is what you need to work with and everybody has strengths and weaknesses. You know your strengths, you're capable and confident within your strengths, understand your weaknesses and understand how to make them better because I've seen athletes that other people would say are overweight and they have been some of the best athletes I've ever seen. And then there's been athletes that have tried to control their weight through diet in an unhealthy practice and they have never swum fast or to their ability. So work with what you've got. The best um, the best component you can focus on is your strength to weight ratio. doesn't matter what size you are, how much you weigh, but how strong you are, how strong you are to be able to pull your frame through the water. And so 
body image uh, means so many different things to so many different people. I never look at the size or the build of an athlete. It is about what their body can do. And I yeah. think that's what we need to focus on more than anything in no matter what um, what sport or what shape of life that you find yourself in. Be proud of what your body can achieve and give it an opportunity to show you what it can do. I think that's very well put, Gian. I, I agree 100% in terms of um, just what the swimmers need to be looking at. Like, you know, you hear so often um, parents and coaches and, and other people saying, oh, you know, so-and-so is put on weight or so-and-so is getting bigger or they're eating rubbish. And I always talk to my athletes in terms of, well, what does your body need to, in terms of to go faster? For you to exactly. race tomorrow, what do you need to eat? That's, that's all you need to worry about. Don't look about dieting or, oh, I need to, you know – sort of cut back on things, what perfect. do you need to and do to go faster? Absolute That's it. perfect advice. And I don't know if I'm very old school as well, but, you know, if you're doing six to seven hours of exercise a day in training, your body is using that much fuel. Yeah. It needs that much fuel to be able to do that. So, you know, uh, work with, an, a nut- with a nutritionist or work with a dietitian that understands athletes and understands the output required um, physically. And, uh, you know, Dennis especially also used to have an incredible way of saying that understand what's going on at school and outside your sport as well. He used to say that a two-hour exam at school, is a, it was the equivalent of a training session a two-hour training session in the pool. Yep. So you, ne- you need to adapt and adjust for those certain influences that are coming um, coming from with outside your sport as well, not just physically but emotionally, mentally draining uh, and those kind of things. So, you know, don't be too hard on yourself is, is what I would say. And um, as we said, you know, it's it's not all about what you look like. It's about what your body can do. Yeah. Question without notice, were you a good eater? So I know when I trained, you know, I could put away probably a family meal just to myself. Unfortunately for me, I continued to do that without the training. Um, Were you a good eater though? Could you put away a fair bit? I I still to this day (laughs) am one of the largest eaters I know, um, particularly amongst my female friends. I have so – this is probably my my most vivid memories of being at high school and and training at my my full-on training capacity as well in the pool. And my mum was – is an incredible – cook in the fact that she's not a gourmet cook but she was so good with nutrition and things like that when I was growing up she didn't even realize it and I didn't even realize it but I would go to school with two full lunch boxes every day I would then on top of that know that I had one girlfriend who would never eat her green apple so that was always mine I had another girl who would never eat her Vegemite sandwich so that was always mine I would then Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. And then I would also dig around, you know, the back of the car seats or the back of the couch yeah. for any coins I could find that I could also go to tuck shop. I just, the whole of my swimming career, I never remember feeling full ever. And that was really hard when it when I came time to stop because I naturally thought if you're not doing the hours of exercise, your body's not going to need as much food and it's naturally not going to crave as much of it. Wrong. Yeah. It's habits that have been formed over a long period of time yeah. and regardless of how much exercise you're doing, you still want the same amount of food that you've always had. So I'm still a good eater to this day. 100%. <laughs> 
Um, was it hard transitioning from a junior athlete into an elite athlete? And we'll get to 1998 and the um, and the Commonwealth Games team in a second. But obviously, throughout that year between 14 and 15, there would have been some some changes. Was that difficult? Yes and no. Um, yes, for me, in the fact that I was a late developer, so I probably didn't really hit the the hormonal challenges and reached my full height uh, physically as well until I was turning 15, that 14 to 15 moment. And so in some ways my swimming actually helped me through that transition and that period. As I said, I wasn't a particularly – I wouldn't say I was a standout as an age group swimmer at any point in time, but I now look back and say that's also because I came to the sport quite late, but I also credit coming to the sport quite late in my ability to um, have a long career because all the girls that I raced at 11, 12, 13 that were, you know, national champions at that stage over multiple events and were breaking junior records and were standouts, none of them actually went on to do anything in the open levels of the sport. And I think it's because they got burnt out. It was too much too early. So even these days to a lot of parents when, you know, they tell me that they've got kids that are very talented and they're age group swimmers, I always ask how old are they. Um, The most important thing I think that any parent can do for their child is sometimes to actually hold them back. There is no reason for an 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old to be doing morning training sessions. There's no need. Um, I don't also believe there needs to be a year-round sport at that point in time. I think you need to have other sports and other influences in there because more than anything, because swimming more than any other sport is so monotonous, And it can be Groundhog Day. I say this too. I had a lot of friends that were triathletes, as I said, or Ironmen, Iron Women. The hardest thing about swimming is that in every other sport, you can change your scenery. Yeah. If you're a runner, you can go on a different place that you've never run, you know, gone for a run anywhere before and change your scenery. As a cyclist, you can do the same, take a new track. A pool is a pool no matter where it is in any part of the world. Mm. Your scenery is the same. It still has a black line on the bottom, lane ropes at the side, and it's either 50 metres or 25 metres long. Yeah. There is, there's no changing it. And so the monotony is a really tough thing about swimming. It is the toughest thing about swimming. So more than anything, the only thing that's going to get an athlete through and get to the point where they are still enjoying the sport as an open swimmer is to love it and enjoy it and for it to continue to challenge you in a positive way. Yeah. And so... If you're having a lot of success as a young age group swimmer and then all of a sudden that's not translating to becoming um, competitive on an open level scale, then of course we're going to lose athletes and they're going to lose interest. Yeah. Um, so you're better off yeah. loving it for <laughs> yeah. longer. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, I listen, I'd agree with you about the not swimming not being an all-round year sport, but I, I tend to think my boss would um, would get pretty uh, cranky with me if I was advertising that the swimmers yep. shouldn't be coming in all year round. So if any of my swimmers are listening, yeah, all, all year round, make sure you're staying in winter. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
1998 was a breakout year for you, as we've just touched on. Um, you had a great Australian champs and you made the team, your first Australian team for the Commonwealth Games in Kuala Lumpur, and you were just 15. What was that experience like? Especially at, you know, at 15, we look at the trend at the moment in world swimming, which is more tending towards now, you know, 21, 22, 23. Um, back yep. when you were, you know, at your peak, it was more of the, the teenagers coming through. So at 15, what was the experience like? It was game-changing. I I cannot explain that moment in any other way. It was the sliding doors moment for me, really, in my swimming career because, as I said to you before, I only started winter training and morning training properly at the age of 14. Mm. So I went to those Open Nationals in Melbourne as a 15-year-old not expecting anything, and I hadn't even made a Queensland Academy of Sport. I hadn't made a Queensland Open team yeah. yet. So, um, to go to those nationals was purely, you know, like a, oh, let's go and race some open competition. That, mm. That's what that was about. Just for experience. And, yep, just for the experience, just to, you know, race the big open league and uh, to and, – and for me, that was so exciting because the one thing that I had more than anything – else throughout my career was that I loved racing. I loved racing. I loved race day. I loved showing how much work that I had done. I loved proving to myself and to others and my family that it was all worthwhile. And so it all just culminated in that time. And I feel very, very fortunate that it happened the way that it did because I got third in the hundred backstroke at those, at those championships. Mm. Um, So third, was nothing, you know, in this day and age, they would never take a third-place athlete yes, to, on an Australian swim team. You know, yep. you, you, wouldn't, you, you just wouldn't make a swim team. Whereas back then, we had such an incredibly strong swim team that they looked at me and went, well, she's only 15. She'll, she won't do anything over at Commonwealth Games, but what an experience mm. um, to be able to give an athlete at this age so they had a spot on the team and so they selected me and I was as surprised as anyone else (laughs) that they took me on that team but it was a defining moment for me because all of a sudden I was not only um, able to meet my heroes and my idols like Susie O'Neill, Samantha Riley, Kieran Perkins, all these people that I had posters of on my wall. I was rooming with them. Yeah. I was training with them. I was watching how they went around their business. I, I understood what it was like to be a professional. I saw how they prepared, what they ate, when they trained, how they trained, all of those things. I had an inside view into what made them the wonderful athletes that they were and being part of that swim team, the camaraderie, the support, the, um, the family environment of that swim team in 1998 was like this light bulb went off in my brain. And I thought, I don't know what I had planned. I never knew if this was going to be a career for me. I never knew if I was ever going to make the Australian swim team, but now that I have made it, I don't ever want to not be on this team. So that was before we'd even got to Commonwealth Games. That was, I had, you know, six months or five and a half months of preparation being an Australian swim, t- swim team member from those nationals until we left for Kuala Lumpur. And it was like, this is it for me now. 
this is this is the dream this is the path i will do everything in my power to make this work because i love this and i cannot believe that i have this opportunity in front of me so that was as i said it was a sliding doors moment in my life mate big big names have just mentioned there on the team did any of them take you under their wing and and look after you Absolutely. I got to room, as I said, with Susie, I think, on that very first um, camp that we went away on. camp and you're with Madam Butterfly. Madam Butterfly. And here I am, as I said, gone from a poster on my wall (laughs) to my roommate. Yeah. And um, not only that, we're also part of uh, – there, there is a big thing on the swim team, which is rookie night, yep. where all the rookies have to do a skit uh, and get up and perform. And Susie, who back then was especially known as quite a shy, reserved, quiet personality, yep. Susie in her, in, in her comfort zone is anything but that. Yep. She has an incredible – sense of humor very dry sense of humor she is hilarious and she's cheeky and so she and a few others uh, decided that they were going to join us on rookie night they were very much experienced members of the team but they joined us on rookie night and we did a rookie night together and i still remember we dressed up in our Commonwealth Games uniforms, which we'd just been given, and we were the Spice Boys. It was the big <laughs> days of the Spice Girls, yep. but we actually, it's probably very incorrect, politically incorrect these <laughs> days, but we had bananas hanging off our bike pants <laughs> and our hats backwards, and we yep. were the Spice Boys. And so all of a sudden, we were never, the young ones, there were a few of us that were rookies, um, myself, Jennifer Riley, incredible 400 IM swimmer, and Rebecca Creedy, incredible sprint freestyler that were on that, 15-year-olds that were on that as um, Commonwealth Games team. And we were never made to feel like we were inferior to anyone else. Yeah, we were warmly welcomed we were warmly supported and i remember sitting next to kieran perkins on the bus for the very first time it was the only seat left next to kieran up the front and i said oh and i quickly sat down next to him and he said hello gian and i said oh my gosh you know my name, he knew your name. He goes, of course i know your name <laughs> <laughs> so as i said i um i credit the supportive nature of that team for the reason that i loved it so much Mate, gold in the 100 back at those games and gold in the 4 by 100 meter IM relay, which you became a, a mainstay in over your career in that relay. You must have been pretty stoked to have such a successful meet, especially since you're having these, you know, oh my God moments. That, that yep. gold in the 100 back must have been the ultimate oh my God moment. It was, and it's probably, there was some great lessons to be learnt off that as well. Very quickly, the story behind that 100 back is that I swam, you know, everything had been going right. I'd gone through um, all the lead up and the training, and then I got to the heats that morning, and um, a bit of a gastro bug had been going through the, the village and the dining hall, and I had picked up a bit of it, and I didn't really worry about it. But I swam the heats of the 100 backstroke, and I didn't swim particularly well or particularly fast. Um, I managed to qualify for lane um uh, six of the of the final, um, but I, I didn't swim particularly fast. And then I got out of the pool, and Dennis said, "What's wrong with you? How come? What what happened?" Yeah. And I said, "You know what, Dennis? I can't really explain it, but I don't feel like I'm at the Commonwealth Games. I don't feel, you know, I feel like I'm at a state titles. I don't feel excited. I I don't, you know, I just don't feel like it's Commonwealth Games." And Dennis 
very quickly recognised what type of athlete I was in that moment mm. um, because every moment up until then, the bigger the meet, the better I swam. Yeah. And he realised that he took a punt and it could have gone either way, but he knew me as an athlete well enough that he absolutely ripped through me. Yeah. And he he knew that he needed to make me nervous and he knew that he needed to make me excited. So he um, he ripped through me and he said, do you know how many athletes wish that they had this opportunity that you do? Do you know how many people are watching you at home? Do you know how many people have gone into – you know, letting you live your dream and make this your dream. Do you know how many people you will have let down if you don't put in a good performance tonight? Mm. You know, it really added the pressure on. But he also knew that that's what I needed Um, at that point in the time. I needed it to feel like a Commonwealth Games. And, you know, even up until that point, hilariously, my dad never lets – has never uh, let me forget it and is still angry at it. But I was so far outside of the realm of winning that 100 backstroke that I was in the betting agencies. I was 300 to 1 to win that 100 back. And my even, yep, even my dad didn't put a dollar on me. <laughs> but a few people at my swimming club did, yep. like 10 bucks, and won a fortune. Yep. And my dad is furious till this day that he didn't back his own daughter. But that's how outside the realm of possibility it was. And so Probably I was so fired up by up the time it. that that, yeah, that that 100 <laughs> came around yeah. that, you know, I understood the enormity of it and the nerves had kicked in and the excitement kicked in and, you know, as I say, it's history. I won that hundred backstroke mm. um, in a PB, and it was the most extraordinary moment. Mm. But it also allowed me, as you said, to swim the backstroke leg of the four by one medley relay. Um, and so all of a sudden, I had my first taste of what it was like to swim alongside Susie O'Neill and Helen Denman, and it was just amazing. Again, to you know have these incredible athletes that I was now part of not only a relay team with, but we won the gold medal as well. So um, it was just highlight after highlight after highlight. And as I said, all I can, all I can say about those Commonwealth games was it it was just the, it, it was the moment of my career that, that, solidified for me the realization that this is what I want to do and I want to do it to the best of my ability and I want it to be my career going forward and I hadn't ever considered that as a possibility up until that point but um very quickly talking about being brought back to earth with a thud I came back I was in year 11 at All Saints High School here on the Gold Coast and I came back after Commonwealth Games with two Commonwealth Games gold medals hanging around my neck and um, you know as a 15 year old and uh, my school held a school assembly for me and the whole school was there and uh, my my high school principal Mr Nan um, got up and said we've had an athlete do something very we've had a student do something very very special I'm sure you all know and that um, she's just come back from Commonwealth games and won two commonwealth games gold medals please make her very welcome and congratulate her welcome to the stage garn rooney so so my high school principal in front of my whole school got my name wrong and in that moment i wanted to crawl under a rock and um you know dig a hole for myself i was so embarrassed and i actually had moments because of all of a sudden the uh the the 
the scrutiny and the fact that I was now different, um, where I wish that it was a silver medal, not a gold, and that maybe that might have been different because everything did change from there. But I was so lucky that I had a very supportive school environment. I had wonderful friends who never made me feel peer, peer pressure or, or like I was missing out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a wonderful school environment and um, that, yes, that they allowed me to do what I, what, I, what I did without any, without making me feel special or different or unusual. And so um, I credit that mm-hmm. for keeping me very grounded in those early years. <laughs> keeping good old gown grounded. Um, <laughs> Mate, you mentioned there the four by one, and I mentioned your your mainstay throughout your career in that. And just going back to something you said about making the team, just the Australian team, and you never wanted to miss that spot again. Was there a little bit of you, once you got a taste of that relay team, never not wanting to be in that relay team again? Absolutely, because I think um, it, it's almost two different, very very different uh, feelings of winning an individual medal Mm. and winning a medal as part of a relay. And every athlete that, you know, I've ever spoken to uh, has loved being a part of relays. And, you know, swimming is considered an individual sport, but really on race day in an individual event, when you get up on the blocks, that's the only time it is an individual sport because there is so much team camaraderie that I've spoken about by your squad mates at training, your coach, your dietitian, or your, your psychologist or your physio or your, your parents, your family, your friends. Everyone goes into helping you achieve your dream. So it's very much a team environment apart from that, you know, 1%, which is actually race day of standing on the blocks on your own. And so relays play into that whole team environment more than any other component of our sport. And I think for the for most athletes, most of us swam our best swims in relays because all of a sudden it wasn't just about you and your performance. You needed to also perform for the team to do well. And so there was this extra added pressure that a lot of Australian swimmers thrived on and I was certainly one of them and I just saw it as a complete honour to be able to represent my country um, as part of a relay team with those extraordinary athletes that I got to have those moments with so absolutely it was a focus on individual events but it certainly was the cherry on the cake to then get a relay spot because of those individual performances. Kuala Lumpur was just the beginning of a massive international career for you. It continued over the next eight years. 2000 Sydney Olympics was massive for swimming here in Australia with the team doing Mm -hmm. so well. You must have loved the opportunity to be able to compete in front of your family and friends. I absolutely did. And you know what's funny is that I I recognised how big it was at that time, but it was only when I came time to retire when my career came to an end, that I recognised how significant the Sydney Olympics was for so many of my um, Australian swim team members back then because why that team was so strong and so supportive and so experienced and so wise was because without the lure of a home Olympics for a lot of those athletes, 
they might have, they probably would have walked away from the sport and retired. Mm. You know, after 98 Commonwealth Games, um, that we would have lost or had a mass exodus, I believe, of our experienced athletes from our sport if the lure of a home Olympics wasn't there two years later. So we had such a wise, experienced, supportive, amazing swim team that understood the enormity of having an Olympics in their home country. But everyone was so thrilled to be there, so um, grateful to have that opportunity to swim in front of their family and friends, and so um, proud to be able to show off our ability in front of a home crowd. So it was just the culmination of, uh, you know, all these different influences that just combined to have these wonderful Olympics and Mm. I was 17 years old I probably didn't have the most amazing meet um, of my career in terms of uh, my individual performances Um, two silver medals as part of relay teams again with incredible athletes amongst it but just to be a part of those Olympics is something that I now realize it is such a rare opportunity for so many and most athletes never get a chance to do that and I'm so grateful that that was a part of my career. So grateful. Mate, one year on, it's the World Champs in Fukuoka and for me it's got to be up there as one of your greatest swimming performances in that 200 mm. freestyle when you finished over the top of the other girls in the 50, uh, in the last 50 to get the gold. I re-watched it yesterday on YouTube with Rabs's great commentary at the back end of it. Can she do it? Can she do it? I'll tell a man she'll do it. Uh, you just don't hear stuff like that anymore. I, I never get tired of, of hearing him. Um, what was that moment like for you? Because we see you after the race. You just sort of float there for a second and you're just looking up at the up at the ceiling. Give us an insight into what was going through your head when you realised you were the best in the world. Oh, it, Actually, hearing you say that, it still gives me goosebumps to this day. Um, I think because... It was the timing of everything. I explained to you the enormity of of the Sydney 2000 Olympics and the reason why I probably didn't have the greatest individual meet at Sydney Olympics is because I was going through that transition from a backstroker to a freestyler. Mm -hmm. And because I was a part of Dennis Cottrell's squad, which included 1,500 champions like Daniel Kowalski and Grant Hackett, uh, we were doing the work of a 1,500 freestyler. So it was a distance squad for all purposes, which didn't really fit with a 5,100 backstroker like I was. So by design, my freestyle had been getting better and better and better, and I had never had the strength to be a great 100 freestyler early on. I said that sprint freestyle in my early on in my career, but my middle distance was starting to show some really – exciting things happening within it because I didn't have the pure speed but I also had the 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 background of training of a much longer distance swimmer than the events I was competing in so I say that it was the perfect storm of 2001 and you know I'd come off Sydney Olympics more motivated than ever wanting to do better than ever we did lose quite a few experienced members of our swim team who retired straight after Sydney 2000 and all of a sudden I felt a real need and want to step up within that swim swim team realm and we had a great team as part of 2001 and uh, you know Australia was was considered one of the best swimming nations in the world and Fukuoka was 
everything was right. It was the right time zone. It was the right um, uh, feeling, temperature. Everything kind of came together for me for that meet. I had incredible preparation. I was feeling very, very confident within myself. I had a huge program because I was still trying to do the 100 backstroke at that time. I think I even competed in the 400 freestyle at that time um, because I'd won the 400 free at those two 2001 national championships (laughs) how how and i can remember the time this is how slow it was and how few others obviously competed well at that time it was a 411 to win the 400 freestyle Mm. at the national championships in 2001 so i had i exactly i had no right to be there it was just Um, the work that you'd been doing obviously that got you through (laughs) as well Absolutely. And so I didn't want to swim a 400 free. I didn't like it, but Dennis made me do it. So I had this massive program at World Champs, but I had the fitness behind me uh, to be able to pull it off. So I still had a very difficult, um, I think it was semifinals of the 200 freestyle and the final of the 100 backstroke clashed. Um, but still managed to make my my way through the 200 free. And uh, I know we'll talk about it in a little bit, before the 200 freestyle heat it happened, we had the 4x2 freestyle relay. Yeah. And we'll tell that story a little bit later, but I had a great swim in that 4x2 yes, freestyle final. Yeah. And I knew that my freestyle was on. I knew my taper had worked. And I knew that um, if I put together the right race, then I was a very real chance of meddling mm. in that two, individual 200 free. So um, progressed through heats, progressed through semifinals, found myself in lane five and very much knew the field. I knew that there were girls in there who were going to take it out very, very fast. As I said to you, I never had that top-end speed. So I knew that I was never going to be out with the front runners at the first 100-metre mark. I knew without really thinking about it or discussing it that if I was within a body length of the leader at the 150-metre mark, that my back 50 was the strongest out of anyone in that field. So all I had to do was maintain strikable distance by the 150-metre mark to come home hard. And that's exactly what happened. I think I turned fifth at maybe the 100-metre mark. I wasn't anywhere of notable in the race at the 150, but I was within striking distance. And I just felt so powerful in that final 50. I felt like I could swim, could have swum another 100 metres. And that was just the work that I had behind me. But the feeling of hitting the wall first in that last 20 metres was like, I'm going to win this, I'm going to win this, I'm going to win this, this is going to happen, I'm going to win this. Um, To turn around and see my name at the top of the leaderboard at a world championships still makes me emotional to this day because it was proof that all my hard work had been worth it, that the transition from a backstroker to a freestyler, that risk was worth it, that Everything that I had done and to that point, my team had done to get me to that point was the the dream that every athlete has to be the best in the world. And it was a dream come true. Mate, just the coach in me, but do you, do you remember your last turn? I do. I actually do remember my last turn. And I remember looking around. I know you're not you're supposed to swim your own race. Yeah. And I very much had my tactics at play, but I just knew by turning and judging, you know, having a a bit of a guess of where I was in the field, I knew that I felt good at that 150-metre mark, whereas whereas I, you know, even a year later at 2002 in Manchester, 
in Manchester, I remember turning at the 150 metre mark and not knowing how I was going to get to the other end. Um, in Fukuoka, I turned at the 150 metre mark and I felt like I was starting the race from scratch. Yeah. I felt like I'd just dived in. I felt brilliant. And I fe- they always say, and every athlete, you know, the ones that where you put together the perfect race don't hurt. And that was so true for me in that 200 free in 2001 because I never remembered feeling pain in that race. I just felt like I timed it perfectly. Everything hit at the right time. And I just felt like in that last 20 metres that I, as I said, I could have swum another lap that no one was going to beat me at that point in time. What a feeling. Have you ever felt yep. like that again? Just a question without notice. Um, no. I don't think, I think that was the only time in my whole career where I felt invincible yeah. in a race. How good. Magical. Yeah. Absolutely magical. Yeah. You, you touched on it just before, and, and it started as another great moment for you in the, the 4 by 200 metre freestyle relay. Um, team of Patria Thomas, Elka Graham, Linda McKenzie. Um, it didn't end as well as you would have liked, though, with the team being DQ'd after the race. And for anyone, and obviously the younger listeners who are going to say, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> the, sto- the story is that, uh, you know, the team was out in front, anchored by yourself, Gian, um, charged home. As you said, you did, you swam brilliantly and you guys won the gold, beating the Americans. Um, at the end of the race, which had been done, I think, previously by the boys, which is, I, I can't remember exactly, but I think not at that meet, but in previous meet, I think the Australian boys had done it too. Um, the girls yep. jumped in the pool to celebrate with you. Um, however, yep. there were still teams on the outside. This is how much you flogged them by. There were still teams on the outside uh, lanes finishing their race. So, you know, with FINA rules, you're not, you're not allowed to be doing that. Um, so while you guys were doing your after-race interview, it actually came up on the board as a DQ, which must have been pretty, not there's any great time to see that you got DQ'd, but you're just standing there talking about how great the race was. Uh, yep. And then you, you see it up on the board in front of the TV, so in front of the cameras, in front of everyone. Talk about highs and lows in the space <laughs> of a few minutes. Um, how yep. was that to cop for you girls? I mean, you've done such a great job. And I, I can't remember, I don't know the exact stat on it, but I think the, the American girls had had a stranglehold yep. on that race for quite a while. Yep. So how was that? Yep. Um, this is, it's actually one of these great stories now where at the time it was the worst thing that could possibly happen, but it is, is, a lot of people remember this moment because as you just set up the race, um, you know, all four of us had a great swim. Mm. Patria had a great swim. Elka had a great swim. Linda had a great swim. I had a great swim. And we not only won the race, but it was in a championship record. And as you said, the Americans had a stranglehold on that event as they did most of the relays, um, you know, for the last 10 years. It was the first time they'd been beaten in 10 years at an international competition in that women's 4 by 2 We... To explain the story, as you said, I was the last, I was the anchor swimmer. So I came into touch and all the girls were bending down to congratulate me. We had our hugs and our high fives and all the rest of it. And I distinctly remember a camera, a Japanese cameraman who was filming for Japanese TV. Mm -hmm. And he said to the girls on the side of the pool, you get in, you celebrate with teammate. I get Uh, good pictures. And at that point in time, no one of us, was looking to see if 
the other athletes in lane eight or lane one had actually finished. Yeah. It was a moment of complete euphoria. All the lanes in our immediate vicinity had finished swimming and a cameraman made a suggestion, you jump in the water, and that's exactly what the girls did. Yeah. So I don't have any blame towards them whatsoever yeah. because – I saw it all happen. We were never thinking about lane eight, and it was also a relatively new rule. I think it had only been brought in after Sydney Olympics the year before to stop, um, to have a very real rule of not impacting other athletes uh, that were still finishing their race. So all of that happened, and so we had no idea that we'd done anything wrong. We certainly knew that we had not uh, had any no one had broken, broken in their changeovers. So the Americans actually were disqualified before us. Yeah. Um, they were disqualified for breaking during a changeover. So they'd already been DQ'd. And then we were doing an interview on pool deck, mm. I believe with Duncan Armstrong yeah, yeah, on pool deck. Yeah. Yes. And uh, we were so excited. We were beside ourselves. We were jumping up and down. And I can't remember one of us, it might have even been me, looked over Duncan's shoulder and saw DQ come up against Australia. And we didn't even get a chance to process it because our media manager, Ian Hansen, who was right there, quickly ushered us off mm. and while we tried to find out what happened. And so it wasn't it was in the warm down pool where we found out the reason why we had been disqualified. Yeah. And, you know, we state the Australian team staged a protest and all the rest of it, but the rules were the rules and we had in fact jumped in before Lane Eight had finished swimming. So we were properly disqualified. I think the thing that annoyed us more than anything is that our championship record didn't stand. Yeah. Uh, because it's not like we had cheated yeah. to go faster um so we still think they should have kept our championship record even if they yeah. disqualified us but anyway um but so an extraordinary thing happened in that warm down pool as we kind of sat there and we sat there as a the team of the four of us and we were bitterly disappointed but we also knew that we had fairly won that race yeah. That we had, we were fairly the world champions on that day, and even the other athletes from other teams came up and congratulated us and said, "In our eyes, you are the winners." Um, you know, so it was an incredible sw world swimming fraternity that we felt the love from. Um, hilariously, we still had to do drug testing. We still had to do press conference that night, mm, that and we were the good. last athlete. Yep, yeah. we were the last athletes to leave the pool. So. Um, you know, getting back to the hotel at midnight, and Elka and I had to get up the very first morning, the very next morning, and swim the heats of the individual 200 free. Mm. So I'm still incredibly grateful for that experience because not only is it a great story all these years later, but it also I was so confident off the back of that relay swim in how I was feeling and how my stroke was feeling that I knew, regardless of the circumstances, that my individual was going to be a good individual swim. So, yep, lots of memories from that one. <laughs> well, I'm glad I asked anyway because, I, yeah, I didn't really know about the, the cameraman saying um, yes. jump in, jump in. So. Yes. <laughs> no, interesting. Um, mate, 2002 and you change coaches, you move clubs. And you begin training down at the Melbourne Vic Centre with Ian Pope. What brought that change yep. about? It was, um, to, to explain, 2001, as I said, I came off with um, 
two world championship gold medals. One, one I didn't receive, but <laughs> um, still very much say that, yes. So had had an extraordinary meet and, um, you know, felt on top of the world, felt like I was invincible off that meet. But I came back and trained harder than I ever had before off the back of those world championships because I wanted to prove to everyone that that wasn't a fluke. I, I knew the saying and I understood the saying that, you know, anyone can do it once, but only true champions can be consistent in a sport and back that that up. Mm. And so that's what I wanted more than anything to prove that that world championships was not a fluke. And so I went home and trained harder than I ever had before. And we were doing hell weeks. We were doing, you know, weeks of three sessions on Monday, three sessions on Tuesday, one session on Wednesday, three sessions on Thursday, three sessions Friday, one session on Saturday, yeah. um, like absolute hell weeks. And I was going close to breaking world records in training. I was flying. And I remember feeling like, again, that I was invincible and that nothing was going to stop me. And I couldn't wait for 2002 Commonwealth Games in Manchester. Um and then a couple of um, a couple of weeks outside of Manchester, training and preparation had been good. Everything had been great. And then I, we came to taper um, before we left to go over for camp. And I started feeling really sluggish. I started feeling really sluggish, really tired, really unable to put anything together. And I thought maybe this just is taper. Maybe you know thought myself through it I'll come out the other end and I was positive all the way up until Manchester um and I again I I touched on it briefly before I swam my 200 free my heat of 200 free and I only just scraped into the final in lane eight here I am the reigning world champion in the 200 freestyle Mm. and I've only just made the final of the Commonwealth Games the following year and I was an absolute mess It was an absolute mess in the, you know, afterwards I was in tears. Dennis, I was like, Dennis, I don't understand. I knew taper hadn't gone well. I felt sluggish and all the rest of it. You know that. But I had been positive up until this point, believing that it would all come together. And he said, you've got a spot in the final. Anything can happen. Anyone can win this. You can win it from lane eight. Just look at Kieran Perkins in 1996. The 1500, if you've got a spot in the final, you can win this race. So I talked myself into it again, positive, positive, positive. And I distinctly remember turning at the 150 metre mark and being incredibly positive up until that point. And I turned and did not know how I was going to get to the other end to the point where I had visions for the first time in um, elite athlete competition at a swimming international swimming competition that the usually redundant lifeguard that sits on the side of the pool was going to have to get in and get me like that's how bad it was i did not know how i was going to make my way back so very different feeling from the year before very different feeling from 12 months before so i finished sixth in that 200 free Mm. at commonwealth games and it absolutely shattered me emotionally mentally It just shattered me and I couldn't understand why I had had tests before I left Australia and everything, you know, blood tests and everything had come back fine. And it wasn't until I came back, I had to prepare only three weeks later after that, being at the bottom of bottom, the lows of lows. Um, We then did PAMPAX back in Japan and I swam marginally better at PAMPAX, but nothing to 
write home about. I think I got a bronze medal in the 200 freestyle at Pampax. And um, I came home from that and I couldn't put my finger on it. I'd worked harder than I ever had before. I'd done everything right. I had not missed one training session since I'd become world world champion. Um, and I just couldn't understand for the first time in my life, A plus B wasn't equaling C. Mm. <laughs> Hard work wasn't equaling success. Yeah. And it absolutely flattened me. Incredibly and frustrating. Incredibly frustrating. Um, I eventually found out that I not only had glandular fever, but I also had an infected wisdom tooth. So physically, my body had just started to shut down. Yeah. And so I took some time away from the sport, and I actually was planning to walk away completely. That's how devastated I was with the, the, that period of time. And it was my dad who said, you know what, you really owe it to yourself to give yourself a second chance. You've put so much into it. Maybe all you need is a change of scenery. Maybe you need to reignite, you know, change something up. Change can be as good as a holiday. So after taking about five months, I think it was, six months away from the sport and recovering, I had all my wisdom teeth out. That um, I had all, I had a great um, relationship with Ian Pope. I had been on backstroke camps with Popey before and uh, Melbourne had always been a city that I loved to visit. So I went down and I had a meeting with Popey and I said, you know, I don't know if, if this is the right move. I don't know what it's going to do. I don't know how this is going to work out, but would you consider taking me on as an athlete if I moved to Melbourne? And he said yes. And it was hard going um, to, you know, new squad, new coach, new training, completely different training environment, um, you know, both program-wise and the physical aspect-wise um, of what I had come from and all that I had known up until that point. So it took a period of adjustment, but I absolute that credit, that move and those um, – that training environment with Ian Pope with giving me another four years and another Olympics to my career because I don't think I would have made it. Um, my body was showing me that I couldn't keep up with the workload of that distance freestyle squad on the Gold Coast um, and that probably my only chance at a, a shot at longevity in swimming was to go back to that sprint backstroke roots that I had started with and um, Popey was able to provide that for me and on top of that he was he was able to provide me with a, a a more mature program for where I was in terms of my age as well um you know it was very much tailored towards each individual athlete and that's what I needed at that point in time because I almost needed to heal as much as I needed to get my confidence back yeah, I mean, there would have been very different um, differences, sorry, in terms of the programming, in terms of the day-to-day -day sets. What were the differences in terms of the, the coaches themselves, the man managers themselves? Very different. I think, um, as I said, Dennis, Dennis is an amazing coach for those that are self-motivated. Yeah. Amazing coach. He has no time for people with no work ethic and becomes incredibly frustrated, which I can understand because I would be exactly the same, mm -hmm. with athletes that are incredibly talented but aren't prepared to put the work in. Yeah. Popey is almost, I say, he's almost part counsellor. He, he knew that 
he would he told me after my career finished that he could tell what kind of session or how much he could push me in each session by my body language of when I walked into the pool. So if I was happy to be there and had a smile on my face and was chatting and talking animatedly, then he knew that he could push me to the extremes in that session. If I walked in with my, you know, shoulders slumped, head down, you know, looking like I had the world on the sho- on my shoulders, he knew that he had to devise a different way for the training session for me to go that day. So he was very insightful as a coach and a very different relationship to that that I had with Dennis. Yeah. But it was also what I probably needed as a 19-year-old. I needed to be given maybe a little bit more um, uh, trust that I knew what was right for me and my body at that particular time. Uh, and he, he allowed me to enjoy um, my training again because for a long time I, I said to you, I loved racing and that's, that was it until the day I stopped swimming. I loved racing. If I could have been like a footballer and had competition, you know, elite-level competition every weekend, mm. I'd probably still be trying to make the Australian swim team, you know, at the age of 36. Um, but twice a year at that top level was really hard for me to maintain because I wasn't an athlete that loved training. I loved racing and I had to do the training to obviously be able to do the component that I loved. And Popey very much recognised that. So he went out of his way to make things interesting for me, to still, you know, work incredibly hard, but to mix it up a lot more and allow my fast twitch fibres and my speed in my backstroke events to come back. And so, as I said, I absolutely credit him with giving me another four years on my career at that point. You mentioned the next four years um, you compete at the Commonwealth Games we just talked about in Manchester, World Champs in Barcelona, Montreal and the Olympic Games in Athens. Of all those meets, you got three gold, two silver and two bronze medals, I think. Um, do any of those races or meets that I just mentioned stand out to you when, when you look back? Absolutely. Um <laughs> 2004 Athens Olympics um, was just extraordinary. (laughs) It was absolutely extraordinary. It was, uh, I guess, the moment that every Olympic athlete, they dream of an Olympic gold medal, and I finally got mine. And, um, you know, it had been... It had been a really tough lead-up. As I said, I hadn't swum well since 2001, really. I hadn't swum, you know, at that elite level well or fast in the in the past three previous years. And I had transitioned, as I said to you, back to being a backstroker. I recognised that that was my best shot at that particular point in my time of when my body, where my body was of, of being successful again. And... Um, I, you know, swam at those Olympics and appreciated the Olympics far more in my second time around than I did in Sydney because Sydney I just expected to be there, whereas Athens I appreciated the enormity of the situation and how hard I had had to work to get that experience a second time around. So it was a completely different feeling. And... um, 
you know, I look at those three women that I got to share that four by one medley relay gold medal world record with, um, in Patria Thomas, one of our most underrated Australian swimmers I think we've ever had. Okay, uh, 100%. Yep. And just an extraordinary person and an extraordinary athlete. And so Patria, so to explain, the 4 by one medley relay at Athens Olympics was the very last event of the swimming program at the Athens Olympics. So we were the last event on the program. And Patria Thomas had already won two gold medals from those um, Athens Olympics. Um, Liesl Jones had had, by her words, a shocker mm-hmm. uh, at those Olympics, but had still got a, a silver medal and a bronze, I believe, um, from those Olympics. And then um, Jody Henry, who one of the most naturally talented athletes I have ever still to this day see swim in a pool but had no idea how good she was had no concept of her ability whatsoever so we used to affectionately call Jodie the space cadet because she was so amazing but so naive as to her ability Um, and she already had two gold medals from those Athens Olympics in the four by one freestyle relay and the 100 free individually and so I remember sitting in that marshalling area with these three extraordinary women and it was the first time that I looked around the room and almost had an out-of-body experience in that every other team was preparing as a team of individuals. So one girl would be off stretching in the corner, one girl might be out talking to a coach, one girl would have headphones on listening to music and here we were, the four girls from Australia, sitting together in a tight-knit little circle and we weren't talking tactics, we weren't trying to pump each other up, we weren't trying to, you know, um, motivate one another. We had complete and utter faith that each member of that relay was going to do their job to the best of their ability. And it was like we knew that a magic, the magic was going to happen. Mm. It's just like we knew. I can't explain it any other way, but there was just a faith and a trust that it was going to come off that day. And we were watching Grant Hackett win his second consecutive 1500 freestyle title. Um, Hackie had the shaved head at that stage and only those in his inner circle knew that he um, was on his ninth course of antibiotics for pneumonia at that stage. And so to see him win under those circumstances was extraordinary. And we watched that from the TV of the marshalling room. And that was all the motivation we needed, if we needed any more. And we walked out there and we all did an exceptional job. Um, And you mentioned, funnily enough, I'm going to take this opportunity to have a bit of a dig because I, I, you mentioned before with Ray Warren calling my 2001 World Championship and his excitement, his positivity in commentary. And unfortunately, in commentary for that four by one medley relay that night in Athens was our head coach, Australian swim team head coach, Don Talbot. Don Talbot, an exceptionally hard man, an exceptionally tough man. And, um, I listened back to the commentary of that four by one medley relay and it makes me so angry Mm -hmm. because he basically, you know, as a backstroker, I am leading the girls off and there is no question that I am the weakest link in that relay. Um, As I said, you know, Patria Thomas 
incredible butterfly who two gold medals from that meet. Liesl Jones, um, you know, silver medal in the hundred breaststroke, uh, third, bronze medal in the hundred breaststroke, but had still, you know, was the fastest in the in the pool in those breaststroke events in Athens. Um, Jody Henry had won the 100 freestyle. I knew I was the weakest link and I knew it probably all came down to me that if I could put together a good race, the rest of the girls were unbeatable. Um, so I led them off and Don Talbot's commentary was nothing short of negative and horrible and makes me look like I had to the lay person a terrible 100 backstroke. It was the fastest I ever swam in my I career. Think I it was a, it now because I, I didn't Australian, that one, I didn't YouTube. Yep. It was a PB and I broke the Australian record yep. in that 100 backstroke leadoff leg of that medley relay, but I finished fifth of the, you know, the backstroke girls yep. um, in that final. And so um, anyway, I couldn't have done my job any better. Any better. <laughs> Yeah. And unfortunately, I can never use that commentary of Don Talbot in any of my presentations because <laughs> it is so negative and so horrible, um, you know, that, uh, that it, it, you know, it still riles me to this day. But anyway, at the time, I, I had tell. no concept of that. <laughs> I had no concept of that. And, you know, as I said, all the girls did a brilliant job. We won the relay. We broke the world record. And... It is part of the reason why still to this day I am so incredibly patriotic. I sing every time I hear our national anthem. I sing loudly. I sing proudly. I sing badly. <laughs> but I um, I am so emotional whenever I hear our Australian national anthem because it takes me straight back to those times in my career and in my life where I have felt so much pride in wearing the green and gold and representing my country on, you know, such a big stage. And that moment um, was just, as I said, a dream come true. Thank you all for downloading and listening to our podcast today with the fantastic Gian Rooney. I sincerely hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did bringing it to you. And the great news is we have another part two lined up for you guys in just a couple of weeks where we discuss the back end of her swimming career, her retirement, her post-swimming career on TV, and we also go through some of Gian's predictions for Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Another great chat that you will not want to miss. I guess this is also a great opportunity to let everyone know we are looking for sponsors on the show. So if you're interested in advertising on the podcast, please get in contact with me through our social media accounts on Facebook and Instagram at Off The Block Swimming Podcast or email us at offtheblockswimmingpodcast at hotmail.com. Thanks again for listening, guys. And until next time, it's bye for now. I just want to be